What is geoeconomics? It's war by other means. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. All righty, let's take a giant stride off this headline from the Wall Street Journal. A two-block world carries risk. It's a shorty because that was from the print version of the Wall Street Journal. Note, a two-block world, B-L-O-C, haven't seen that since the Cold War. But if you go to the Wall Street Journal online, it's a much longer headline for the same story, and it kind of lays it all out. Here's the big headline. Friend-shoring might be bad for global growth and inflation. Some economists worry that picking trade partners for geopolitical reasons could create a world of antagonistic blocks. So I had no idea there was a term for this, but I definitely noticed that there were Cold War-style trading blocks emerging. I've been talking about this I actually started talking about it before the Ukraine war thing started. I was like, you know, I cannot understand why they are so hell-bent on focusing on fossil fuels and climate change. Like, as a mechanism to change and control the world, I can see that it's valuable, but they're really focused on fossil fuels. And I started to think that there was a long-shot chance that they had decided or discovered that They'd basically tried, they meaning, let's say, the Rockefeller cabal. Let's just call it the Rockefellers right now because Rockefeller was the one who wanted to monopolize the world oil supply. So they've had basically 100 years to do it. Some people think they actually made the Russian Revolution happen to take the czar out because he would have possibly been able to provide some real competition to a Rockefeller-dominated world oil supply. So it's been 100 years and it doesn't seem like they managed to do that. I think maybe what's happening in Syria and obviously Ukraine makes it look like they don't have that energy market sewn up. So how about instead move the world away from dependence on fossil fuels. I don't even like calling them fossil fuels because I think that's a theory and uh, I'm really not, I don't subscribe to it. I mean, I don't know for sure, but it's just, uh, you know, I'm not convinced, let's just say. So if they have finally made the decision to move away from that, they're obviously not going to get Russia on board with that or China that still wants to grow. It's, It's really an acknowledgement that the West, let's say this is all being run by the West, that the West cannot really control the entire world and that they'd rather just split it in two than have to compete head to head with the resource center of Russia. And it used to be Germany was the manufacturing center of the Eurasian island continent, but China obviously is now. So if Russia and China, I kind of kind of thought of it this way, like if Eurasia has become self-aware If Russia and China weren't willing to take the second seat at the world table, well, then just make two tables, maybe, is how the West have come up with that. And I'm thinking that Europe isn't totally on board with that. There's plenty of factions and viewpoints, the European viewpoint, that doesn't go for that. Like, recently... We talked about the Davos introductory remarks. One was Klaus Schwab and one was the president of Switzerland. The president of Switzerland said we could go in one of three ways. We could get really isolationist. We could have like a hybrid system or we could have a totally global marketplace. And I really want the global marketplace. 
For me, I think that second choice is what the U.S. is pushing for. As per the RAND doc, RAND Corporation document we talked about on the show I posted on May 20th, where if we can't have it all, then we've just got to split it in half. That's really a U.S. viewpoint, and I think that's what we're pushing for. I think that's what why the U.S. provoked Russia in Ukraine. But back to the article, they call it friend shoring, which I had absolutely never heard of that. It's very clever because it sounds like it's a really positive thing. But what it is, is it's creating two adversarial blocks for sure. And as a matter of fact, Davos actually out now calls it a form of war. The Davos World Economic Forum document from their big meeting in Switzerland this year has these interactive like wheels. And you can pick a major category, even a minor category, and it shows around the wheel all the interrelated topics. So one of the super big categories is called geoeconomics. And the way they define it on the Davos website is geoeconomics, or the application of power politics by economic means, is a contest waged via global trade and investment rather than on a traditional battlefield. Countries have been increasingly participating in this form of active economic intervention by applying sanctions, export controls, and subsidies while developing investment screening mechanisms and data localization measures, so to keep data local, I think, In general, there is a growing concern about the security risks posed by economic interdependence in terms of sovereignty and economic resilience. Let's read that part again. The security risks posed by economic interdependence in terms of sovereignty and economic resilience. So interdependence impairs your sovereignty and your resilience. This convergence of economic and security thinking is placing added pressure on the norms and rules that have governed the global economy for decades. So we're talking about a paradigm shift, even a reversion to a prior set of norms and rules. But I'm also reminded of something I read. I don't know how many people know Mark Faber, but he was called Dr. Doom. Like he predicted 10 out of the last seven recessions. That's the joke. But he used to have these great articles. I briefly subscribed to his incredibly expensive newsletter. And one of the articles was just so interesting where he said that a declining great power tends to have military superiority. And the rising great power has economic superiority. So the declining power is going to want to make conflict military, while the rising power, and and he was talking about China, wants to make it economic. So I see this geoeconomics, and specifically the way Davos described it, as being a way to make the economic rivalry militaristic. And that is kind of goes hand in hand, I think, with the way they're using climate change as making economics moralistic and the ESG stuff, the environmental governance, uh, (laughs) social, whatever standards that they promote are like moralistic, but they're saying that they're economic and they're making them economic by imposing penalties or giving subsidies, carrots and sticks all over the place just to force it into an economic framework. But it also reminds me of this kind of dead or whatever passe paradigm that they seem to be returning to. So recall that Rand Corporation document I was talking about, 
where they're recommending, this was a 2019 document, where they're talking about how to provoke Russia into spending money and pivoting in a direction where they will not have any advantage. And they specifically say, like, escalate Ukraine, pressure Belarus, stuff that they ended up doing. And I think as they were writing the scenarios in this document over the past couple of years, it's become clear which way they were going to go and what they're the way they're going, I think, as a very recent decision, is this two-block world. But the one passage from that Randoc was that their current work builds on the concept of long-term strategic competition that they had developed during the Cold War in a 1972 seminal RAND report that posited that the United States needed to shift its strategic thinking away from trying to stay ahead of the Soviet Union in all dimensions and toward trying to control the competition and channel it into areas of U.S. advantage. They went on to say, and this is the segment that really speaks to how it's a reviving an old paradigm. And here it is. The United States has provided limited support to Russia's opponents in eastern Ukraine and Syria and might do more, thereby driving up Russian costs. Proxy competition of this sort is not new. Indeed, the great game characterized interstate relations for several centuries as aspirant global powers clashed over conflicting spheres of influence. The renewal of such maneuvering marks a return to a form of geopolitical competition that some analysts argue took a brief hiatus after the end of the Cold War when the United States was left as the lone superpower and the ideology of liberal democracy seemed to reign supreme. Now, they're saying maybe it didn't even take that hiatus, but it looks like we're returning back to that paradigm in force. This idea of friendshoring and geoeconomics as war by other means, in my mind, brings this idea of the military industrial complex as like taken to a whole new level. And I think that it also does elicit, but I, I think they'll be squared away pretty quickly, these maybe some tensions between European and American interests. But the way Germany did capitulate and is finally giving up on the gas pipelines to Russia, that I think is how Europe will go. And they did have to change out the head of state there in order to get that to happen for whether it was for optics or because Merkel wouldn't even go for it or she was ready to just <laughs> bow out of this round. I don't know. But I feel like that's the level that we're at right now, that they will get everybody in line. But there's some risk. I mean, it looks like they don't have it all buttoned up. Now, if this is how things are really going, we really are looking at they've really made a decision and are really going to push us towards this two-block world. I personally, I'm not a fan, obviously, who would be, of these global corporations running the whole world. I am a fan of free trade, arm's length transactions, open competition. I feel like you have the most liberty, the most prosperity when people are engaged in that. And it drives everyone down to what's called economic zero. There aren't a lot of profits because if you have a really profitable business, other people will enter that business until the profits go down to where it's kind of just worth the inputs, worth the labor, worth the capital, worth your time and effort. And if it weren't, you would do something else. So that ends up having the lowest prices, the best 
selection, what people want the most, the most utility, basically, to use economic terms. But if they're going to go for this, this is likely to reduce our choice. We can see it already. They're using these supply chain problems as, and I think they're ginning up the supply chain problems to make it look like this is what the problem is. And this is how to create the solution. But I've been noticing too, like somehow they're reducing our choice at the store. You're waiting for things to get in. You're not insisting on variety. It looks like that will be the new normal if you cut out half the world. If China is no longer where we source everything, and I'm not saying that that was really free trade. I think that they probably have some I mean, I know they have an unfree system, and I know that we've given them advantages when it comes to trade that has lowered the prices of those goods here. But regardless, where we're headed, I think, is going to result in less choice, less freedom, and higher prices, because we are now really going to favor less efficient producers. And if we see this coming, it may be helpful to prepare or even to push back on the narrative a little bit, because now as I see these pieces of the puzzle kind of move around and lock into place in real time, I see that there is some dynamism, some dynamic in the system. So I think until Russia reacted on February 24th in Ukraine, I think it was still possible that they could get Putin to just capitulate and maybe save himself, give him, throw him a Rolex or whatever. But he didn't do that. So now they're taking a, a different strategy and maybe a little riskier strategy. And I feel like that kind of chaos means they're not in total control. And so Putin had a choice there. Putin made a difference. And I think that voters sometimes have a choice. I'm not sure it's at the poll, at the ballot box, but I believe that there was a time when Ted Cruz and Donald Trump were both vying really for the Republican nomination. I think the powers that be were waiting to see which way they were going to break with their psyop, with like the Christian right causing tension or the obnoxious personality causing the conflict. I mean, that is how I think it it was. So although I do see that there is some dynamism here, some you know, some chaos, some lack of control. I'm not totally white-pilled on it because I think Russia and China are very happy to play this game. My guess would be that, you know, like I said, they became self-aware and they knew how much power they had at the table. They could bargain more heavily for a better place or just say, take your ball and go home. And they're not playing this game because they care about the American consumer. I think they probably wouldn't even care about their own people if their interests weren't totally aligned with them, if their fortunes didn't rise and fall with their own populations, which is what you want. That's why actually some people would prefer monarchy to democracy, because at least you have a head of state whose fortunes, whose family will rise and fall with the fortunes of the country, as opposed to in a democracy where you kind of have to steal and spend as much as you can in the two years or however many years you have in a seat of power. But even from a moral point of view or a principled point of view, our government does not have the authority or the right to decide with whom we have arm's length transactions, whether it's our friend companies or friend nations or not with enemy nations. 
they shouldn't have anything to do with that. It's just like the right to work and travel or even to trade with Cuba. It's really not our government's place to make those choices. And they've often used the might of the U.S. military, you know, our tax dollars and our authority, our cries of that, that this is in our national defense to shape the world. And now they're adding to that our consumer dollars. It's like a force multiplier of our tax dollars is this geoeconomics. And they're not doing it for us. When they talk about American interests, it's not that. It's not our interests. It's their cronies. It's these globalists they're in bed with. It's the people who will make sure that they get theirs. So I And you can even see it like the way Biden and Zelensky profit from the corruption in Ukraine. I've gone into that a little bit in the past. I could go into it a lot more. Maybe I will. Maybe a couple of future deep dives. But this idea of taking our privileges, our, or I should say, our rights and the power of having this taxpayer citizen and appropriating it for themselves and their cronies, it's straight out of Albert J. Nock, our enemy, the state, about how the state is really just a mechanism by which they steal the surplus value of the economy by controlling the marketplace. So this journal article, as well as a few others that were linked in there, all point to COVID, Ukraine, and even Trump's trade war as the launching off point for this stuff. It's like highly organic, according to them. But I would say every one of those things, COVID, the Ukraine crisis, and Trump's trade war were all manufactured in order to point to this thing, to the point where many of these things even talked about the perfect storm. The global supply chain always talked about the perfect storm. They blamed COVID, but the supply chain totally recovered pretty quickly after COVID and and then just all of a sudden started to get bad again because of these weird confluence of events. So this is why I never take anything at face value. All these perfect storms pointed to the direction of a pre-packed solution that raises costs to us and gives profits to less efficient, lower quality producers. And it reduces our choices and our overall quality of life. I mean, they're using their power and trying to sell it to us as being in our favor. But they're telling us right here in these articles that it's going to make it worse for us. It's going to make inflation worse. It's going to make our quality go down. It's going to cost us tax dollars. And they're claiming it's because we're too vulnerable to the supply chain. But I say that what they're pointing to as having uh, be evidence that we have a vulnerable supply chain is stuff that they forced upon us. Even that baby formula shortage, that was the FDA doing something absolutely unjustifiable that made no sense and they can't defend. I mean, they ginned that up. And like the classic example of the supply chain issue is the semiconductor thing. So semiconductors, which we couldn't get from China, it had this cascade effect across the economy into every other product. So you had the Huawei issue where we were saying they're a national security risk or they're engaging in unfair trade practices. We've been after the semiconductor industry ever since China started pulling away from us. And I went back far enough along to find in the day where it said that the semiconductor industry was a real problem in that it was rising in China and 
they were overtaking us and there was nothing we could do to catch up. So it started out as an economic problem. Then it went to a national security problem. Then they had to use the global supply chain issue to justify this complete revamping of the world economy to make sure that their favored countries and corporations would be protected from competition from these more efficient suppliers. It seems to me that in a lot of these articles that Janet Yellen is like the messenger. And sometimes I wonder if she's the messenger because she's like the stay puffed marshmallow man of the economy. I call it the stay puffed marshmallow man syndrome. It's from Ghostbusters where like you have to think about the thing that you most love or least fear, that you least fear, and that's the thing that cannot hurt you. And of course, that's the only thing that can hurt you because it's the only thing that gets through your defenses. So I thought of that with Biden, like this doddering old man, of course, he's not going to start World War III or the next civil war. And that's exactly what he's trying to do, or seems like it. And same thing with Yellen. She's just like this nice old lady, Mrs. Claus. And she's talking about Friendshoring, this is her quote, friendshoring of supply chains to a large number of trusted countries would allow the U.S. to deepen ties with a group of countries sharing, quote, a set of norms and values about how to operate in the global economy. Now, you really don't have to do that as long as you don't kill or steal. I mean, if those are the norms she's talking about, okay, but I actually think she's not talking about those norms. I think that the norms that she's talking about involve a kind of American exceptionalism, which allows killing and stealing. Look what's happening in Ukraine, the corruption, the the 14,000 people who died in Donbass after the U.S. coup there. Even one of the European chicks said she's the chief economist at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development. She said, it reminds me of Comic-Con, referring to the trading bloc led by the Soviet Union and open to countries who shared a communist worldview. So think about that. Like it was a totally ideological, philosophical division of the world. And that is what they're going for again. But it will cost the U.S. taxpayer coming and going. So Yellen also talked about in that meeting creating incentives for friendshoring. And I think this is what, they're, what she was talking about. Here's an example from one of the Wall Street Journal articles. In transatlantic trade discussions, the U.S. and the European Union are looking at coordinating their plans to spend tens of billions of dollars to help companies such as Intel Corp. build factories for advanced semiconductors. In 2021, 92% of the world supply of advanced semiconductors came from one company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, according to a White House report. So... 92% of the world's supply of advanced semiconductors. Maybe that is an example of one of those factories that actually is like one factory could supply the world. That would be a natural monopoly, which that's rare, if not unprecedented. So now the U.S. and the European Union are spending, courting their plans to spend, whose money is that? It's taxpayer dollar. Tens of billions of dollars for Intel. Intel's a publicly traded company. Why are, why on earth would we give them money? And, it, and it's like this big circle. So they give them the money. They do the World Economic Forum ESG stuff. They are the only people who can do it when you have a highly subsidized, kind of, kind of like Tesla, you have a highly subsidized company within an industry. Nobody else is going to be able to do that because it's not an economically viable technology or 
model. There is one. And that's the one that's going to dominate, even if it's not the best one, even if it's not the cutting edge one. If it's sufficient, nothing else will emerge in a free market. And that's good. You don't want this because this, you are taking my money to do something that the market isn't demanding. And then you put all that power and control in the hands of your cronies who know they owe you. And then what do they do? Maybe they let you stay in there, you know, use their yacht <laughs> or, or, you know, just on the individual level. Uh, and then that feeds into these bigger mechanisms, the institutions of the big philanthropy, of these think tanks, of governments, Rand Corporation is a think tank that was established by a defense company and is funded in large part by the U.S. Army. So these are interests that are interacting and we're paying for it with not only our tax dollars, but they're saying they're doing this in our name. I mean, that to me is a kind of fascism, but it's an international fascism. Like, I feel like if you want to look at China as kind of like a nationalist fascism, you know, it doesn't even feel like communism because they have companies, they have capitalists there. It's just interacting with the state, but it seems to still have national boundaries. This definitely doesn't. It's that international global elite. So that's kind of part one. I want to get into part two in the next show because we're going to talk about the summit of American states, I guess it's called, which is happening in LA this week. And the president of Mexico isn't coming. So to the extent that they're making two blocks in the world that we've opted to, or that our fearless leaders ha huh, have opted to make it a two-block world, they had better be sure they can control their block. So I want to get into a little bit what that means in the Western Hemisphere and how that folds into what's happening in LA today. And I guess I will just leave you with my kind of thought for the day as I, as I look at what looks to me like a massive paradigm shift, a reversal, something kind of retro, that, yeah, it doesn't look good for us. I don't think it's good. But where previously, I think when these guys were super confident that the whole world would, their, all the world leaders would sit at their table, they could coordinate everyone together. When Putin was giving the opening remark or speaking at Davos last year or two years ago, in that world, there wasn't a counter narrative. There wasn't pushback. There wasn't that element of chaos. And the chaos is the wild card. The chaos is the unpredictable thing. So that when instead of doing two scenarios or four scenarios about how will the people of the world react to our plans, they have to look at how will our opposition react to our plans? And then how will their people react? And then how our people react? And then there's a lot of interaction. And that, to me, opens up a whole new world of possibilities as to what the future might hold. That it went from being kind of planned out to being they've had to take some risks. So I guess my upshot on this was to never give up hope. And I was on the Union of the Unwanted yesterday, and there was another guest. Her name is Celeste of Celestial Reports. I think I'll be talking to her soon. You might know her. So she was talking about a family problem that was distressing her. And all I could think of, and it's what I said, was never give up hope. So I left this out, but I, I'm, I think she probably already knew it. I think she was of this mindset that 
Uh, it is a Catholic thing that there are two unforgivable sins, despair and presumption. So presumption, there's no like unforgivable sin, but the reason they call despair and presumption unforgivable sins is that in order to be forgiven, you have to ask forgiveness. Presumption is you're so confident that you're going to be forgiven for everything that you never ask and that you're never forgiven. And then despair is when you're so uh, depressed or so desolate, despairing about what you've done that you think you couldn't be forgiven. So you don't even ask like Judas Iscariot. If he had asked forgiveness, there'd be a St. Judas. I think. I think that's right. But he didn't. So despair is like an unforgivable sin. And hope is a virtue. It's the opposite of despair, obviously. And I think hope kind of goes hand in hand with faith. Because where there's faith, there's hope. And sometimes I've noticed that your only hope is hope. It's almost tautological. Because if you give up hope, you stop trying. And then there really is no hope. So I don't know if that makes any sense. But if you if you keep hoping and praying and working towards the outcome, the good, maybe even the thing that you really want and hope for, like I don't think splitting the world in two is exactly what I had in mind as I wanted liberty, but maybe it's the break that the world needs to keep from just escalating into that global totalitarian technocracy that it kind of looked like we were headed to and and we may still be but i think we got some hope i'm monica perez if you enjoy this podcast please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it and feel free to tweet at me at monica perez show